Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we propose to celebrate together with the help of God the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this Lord's Day. We come to the table to commune with our Lord. We come in awe and reverence, for the place where we stand is holy ground. Here the Lord offers us the manna of life. If we are to experience this celebration with our Lord and be nourished by the Spirit, let us examine ourselves first, then eat the bread and drink from the cup. The benefit is great, and with penitent hearts and living faith, we receive the Lord's Supper. Let us acknowledge our sin before our merciful God with full intention of amending our lives. Let us make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done to others. Let us forgive those who have offended us as we ourselves have been forgiven. All children of the covenant be reconciled with one another and then come joyfully to the banquet so that you may experience God's pardon and strengthening of your faith. Let us pray together our prayer of confession. God of all worlds, Easter victor, victorious spirit, though we are declared to be victors over the godless world, we often feel doubtful and defeated. We are too prone to go by our feelings and not to accept the witness of the apostles, believing his victory to be our victory over sin and death. Victorious spirit, overcome our doubts and fears as we read and hear the apostolic witness. Increase our love as well, for we need to love others who are not as lovable as Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. The victory that defeats the world is our faith. We are victors over evil by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, believe the good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lift up your hearts. God of heaven and earth, Christ of the cross and resurrection, Spirit of creation and recreation, grant us the blessing you promised to those who believe in the risen Christ without visible and tangible proof of his victory over death. Amen. The first lesson is from the book of Acts, the fifth chapter, beginning at the 27th verse. The apostles are persecuted. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel lesson is found in the John's gospel in the 20th chapter, beginning at the 19th verse, Jesus appears to the disciples. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven then. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. This is a, the series of lections, yes, that last week and this week, deal with the subject of faith and doubt. Faith among those who saw the empty tomb, and doubt among those who said they needed to see for themselves and see exactly those who needed absolute proof. Faith is a strange thing, isn't it? Faith, belief, proof. Science depends on proof, and yet it really doesn't, because a lot of science was hypothesis that could not be proven, at least until recently. My mother was fond of reminding me that her chemistry book from college stated quite firmly that the atom was the smallest bit of matter and there was no way it could be divided. And yet, people were postulating for years that there were these smaller things. Recently, we have read of the Higgs particle that has been postulated for years and finally shown. Science has believed in these things, and yet they could not actually prove them until recently. This is a poor analogy, of course, because we don't have any, quote, hard evidence of the resurrection, end quote. We can't find a cross with a sign on it, Although in the Middle Ages, there were plenty of people selling pieces of the, quote, true cross, end quote. Uh, 
Religious fakery is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. We can't take scientific DNA proof. We must believe. What is belief? What is it to say, my Lord and my God, without actual physical proof? The Gospel of John was written down for those who came after the resurrection, those who had not seen. It was written for those who could say, my Lord and my God, without actually having seen the empty tomb, the miracles of Jesus, and all of the things that went on in Jesus' life. It was written that you might believe, you being the believers through the entire history of the world, including us. But then what of doubt? The sermon was entitled, The Place of Doubt. You notice that Jesus does not say to Thomas, be away from me, you accursed person who doesn't believe. He doesn't criticize Thomas at all, except possibly indirectly. He merely reminds Thomas that those who can believe without proof are blessed. He does not condemn those who require proof. Jesus, of course, being human, knew human nature. What is doubt, and how do we deal with it? Doubt has had a bad reputation in the history of Christianity. Very often we're told, don't doubt, just believe. And doubt can be very destructive. We all know about the destructive kinds of self-doubt, that nagging voice in our head that says, you idiot, you can't do anything right, you fool. What do you think, who do you think you are trying that anyway? And that kind of destructive voice that all of us have. Certainly that type of doubt is corrosive, and it can get into our faith. When we start doubting the evidence of our senses, sometimes we start doubting our faith as well. If I can't trust what I can see with my eyes, how can I possibly trust that that I cannot, says that little voice. Corrosive doubt is, of course, dangerous, unhealthy. But what about constructive doubt? Is it enough to say, believe, do not doubt? There is a place for constructive doubt. Doubt helps us grow. When we are very small, we believe everything that our parents and our teachers say. As we get older, we begin to question it. Sometimes this drives parents absolutely bananas, as you know. There is that stage when, as Mark Twain put it, how did he put it? Uh, when I was younger, I used to realize, doubt that everything my parents said, and now I realize. Well, we go through that stage, and we probably go through that in our religious life. About the teenage years, perhaps? How can this possibly be true? There's no scientific evidence and we wrestle with it. And that kind of doubt is strengthening, the kind of doubt that enables us to ask questions. Did this happen? And then to go deeper, is that important? What parts of the biblical stories do we need to believe as true, factual? And what parts of the Bible are ways of explaining God's relationship to humans and humans' relationship to God.
Does this denigrate scripture to ask that question? It does not. Of course, the Bible is neither a scientific treatise nor a historical one. It's a record of God reacting to humans, relating to humans, and humans' reaction to God. It is, of course, our sacred scripture. There are parts of the Bible that we do not follow anymore. We don't follow the kosher laws. We understand where they came from. We understand why they were important at the time. But most of us have decided that that Old Testament law is no longer important because of the witness of Jesus Christ and the New Testament. When we look at some of the stories in the New Testament, some of us who are scientifically trained will sometimes try and explain them scientifically. Does this mean we have no faith? It does not. It means we believe strongly that God created the natural world. Down at the food pantry the other night, a couple of the volunteers that had come in from Michigan and were using our showers, and a rather conservative volunteer got into an argument about God and evolution. It was very interesting to listen to each side prevent, present their firmly held position on whether God had created the world in seven days and exactly what that meant. I was fascinated to hear the arguments, both pro and con. But both of the, all of those people engaged in that discussion were expressing some doubt, examining their faith, and by doing so, strengthening it. There's a story told about a child, in the, a military child, who came home from Sunday school, and her parents said, what did you learn in Sunday school today? The child took a deep breath and said, we learned about Moses and the Red Sea. Oh, well, you see, Moses had to cross this body of water, and so Moses sent the Corps of Engineers ahead to build a pontoon bridge, and when everybody got across, then he sent the seals in to destroy it so that the Egyptians couldn't get across. Well, the parents looked at the child and said, is that exactly how your Sunday school teacher told you the story? At which point the child, who was about five, said, no, it isn't, but if I told you what the teacher said, you wouldn't believe it. Well, again, that child is growing in faith by asking, how is this possible? And by applying what that child knows of the real world to the scripture. There are those, of course, who would say rather sternly to the child, well, of course it's true. Your Sunday school teacher said so. More enlightened parents would talk about it and say, why are you having trouble believing this? What is the difference between what you know in the physical world and what we believe in religion? And it would be a very good opportunity for a faith discussion, even with a five-year-old. As you know, five-year-olds can ask some awful penetrating questions it can be very embarrassing when we can't really answer them. I got stuck once when my five-year-old cousin asked me, is DNA alive? Um, uh, that, um, and I was a biology major at that point also. Children's questions help children develop faith. We should not be, child, we should not be childish in our faith, but we do need to be childlike. We need to examine what we believe and why. We need to be pistos 
which is the Greek for believing, not apistos, non-believing. Thomas required proof, and yet when presented with the proof, he no longer was required to have that kind of physical proof. We will never have, I don't think, that kind of physical proof. I have no idea what the heavenly body of Jesus is like. It's not really my concern. I have enough trouble dealing with the reality of day-to-day life down here. I can't really even bother with thinking about heaven, and that's part of my faith journey, perhaps. Thomas was able to say, my Lord and my God. Thomas shows us that there are degrees of faith. There is the faith that can hold firmly in spite of everything. There is the faith that wavers and comes back. There is the faith that examines. And there is the faith that simply hangs on to everything that they were told. There are Christians, of course, who stop growing in their Christian life at about, sometimes in childhood, sometimes at confirmation. Unfortunately, there are some clergy who stop growing also and stop asking questions and stop wondering and stop looking at the text and debating and thinking and going deeper and wondering what levels of meaning there are underneath this story that I've been told all my life. Faith is a funny thing. In Christianity, we don't require physical proof that the scientist does. And the world will sometimes say to us, because you cannot scientifically prove it, it cannot be true. The answer to that is, when we come up against that, ultimately the answer is, I believe. The discussion about the literalness of the Bible finally came down to the Big Bang Theory, not Sheldon and the... uh, the TV series, but the Big Bang Theory of the Astronomers that states that the universe was created when a large mass of matter blew apart. What the astronomers don't explain is where did that matter come from anyway? We are up against faith at that point. I have no trouble reconciling scientific discoveries with faith because ultimately science cannot explain where did it begin. Science can show us that creatures have changed over millennia. Science can show us that the environment has changed over millennia. Science can show us that stars live and die and create black holes. But as far as I know and believe, science cannot tell us what started the universe or universes. I believe God. Faith gives us the strength to go on. Not the kind of faith that simply depends on what our teachers told us, but the faith that has had honest doubts and has wrestled with them. Dark nights of the soul, painful and difficult and ugly as they can be, can strengthen our faith. The cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which actually I think was why have you glorified me, but when we cry that, we wonder, where is God? Why have you forsaken? And that kind of depth of agony and doubt gets responded to. In this passage, 
the disciples receive the precursor of the Holy Spirit. They are told that Christ has given them peace, not absence of conflict, but that well-being, that orderliness that shalom means. Our faith gives us that. In spite of the chaos around us, and the headlines today are just as chaotic as usual, as one of my friends said, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and I want the handbasket concession. Well, yeah, the world is in chaos. When hasn't it been? But our faith allows us to see through that chaos, not living in some pie in the sky. World will be better in the next world, but giving us the strength and the faith to go on and deal with what is out there not becoming discouraged because we can't solve the whole mess, but recognizing what we can do, and more importantly, recognizing what we do to not add to the mess. With Thomas, we say, my Lord and my God. Thanks then be to God for the healthy doubt that enables us to grow. Let us pray. O oh God, we often have doubts, and very often, instead of the healthy doubt that enables us to grow, we are overcome by that sense of helplessness and hopelessness and feeling that the world is against us and that Christianity is a lost cause. Give us the strength, then, to use doubt appropriately, to strengthen our faith, and to recognize who you are and who is in charge of the world. Amen. O Senhor é o meu pastor e nada me faltará. O Senhor é o meu pastor e nada me faltará. Ainda há, há que eu ande e, e pelo vale da sombra da morte nada. Ainda há, há que eu ande e e pelo vale da sombra da morte nada nada temerei nada temerei nada temerei nada temerei nada temerei nada temerei o Senhor é o meu pastor e nada me faltará o Senhor é o meu pastor e nada me faltará. Ainda há, há que eu ande e, e pelo vale da soma da morte nada. Ainda há, há que eu ande e pelo vale da soma da morte nada. Nada temerei, nada temerei, nada temerei, nada temerei, nada temerei, nada temerei. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marilyn, for the opportunity. Thank you, James, for your, your precious time.